You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the RAND Corporation. I'm Deanna Lee. And I'm Emily Ashenfelter. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from RAND's latest research and commentary. It's June 9th. After early reports that a significant share of the January 6th attackers were or had been affiliated with the U.S. military, there were concerns that the veteran community might be at increased risk of radicalization to violent extremism. Now, some extremist groups have sought to target both active duty and military veterans, and you can understand why. Veterans are considered significant additions to these groups, given their past weapon training and their logistic and leadership skills. Veterans also lend a sense of legitimacy to militant groups that can further aid recruitment. But are veterans actually more susceptible to radicalization? To learn more about this issue, RAND conducted the first nationally representative survey of veterans' views about extremism and extremist groups. We found no evidence to support the idea that the U.S. veteran community supports violent extremism at higher rates than the American public. Here's how the numbers break down. 5.5% of veterans express support for Antifa. That's compared with 10% of the overall U.S. population. Less than 1% of veterans express support for white supremacists. This was a significantly lower rate of support than in the overall U.S. population, which came in at 7%. Veterans also expressed relatively less support than the general population for the Proud Boys, 4.2% versus 9%, and the QAnon conspiracy theory, 13.5% versus 17%. Finally, about 5% of the veterans we surveyed expressed support for black nationalist groups. Among the veterans who did express support for extremist groups, the majority did not endorse political violence. This is certainly good news, but this finding, along with the fact that some extremist groups may target those with military experience, suggests that work is still needed to ensure that veterans are not susceptible to recruitment by extremists. Still, though, as lead author Ryan Brown noted, it seems possible based on our survey results that some of the characteristics that lead someone to serve the country might protect against forces that seek to undermine the country. With nearly 7,000 active satellites and more than 130 million objects smaller than a golf ball, outer space is more congested than ever before. Of course, this reflects increased activity in space. Governments and companies rely on space for countless different functions— defense and national security activities, satellite communications, internet service, television and cable broadcasting, financial transactions, weather monitoring and prediction, and scientific exploration and experimentation. And there are no signs of slowing down. Studies estimate that tens of thousands of additional satellites will likely be launched into low Earth orbit by 2030. This boom in activity, satellites, and so-called space junk, that's the term for human-made debris, like literal nuts and bolts, traveling through space at high speeds, has increased the risk of collisions and conflict. That's why RAND researchers say now is the time to establish an international organization that's responsible for space traffic management. 
Here are some of their recommendations for how to make progress. First, major space powers such as the U.S., China, and Russia should formally start a discussion to establish an international space traffic management organization. The goal should be to convene within the next five years and set specific milestones for implementation within the next 10 years. Second, while there is no single perfect model, space traffic management should follow some existing best practices. For example, the effort should be cooperative, collaborative, and inclusive. And the process of creating regulations for space should be subject to voting, which would enforce equality and ensure that diverse views are included. Third, an international space traffic management organization should be staffed with an adequate number of technical space experts and appropriately resourced to compensate such experts. If space leaders do not take steps such as these and begin the hard work of establishing a space traffic management organization soon, then the chance of a disaster or future conflict in space will only increase. Further, there is a significant chance that the world will lose key portions of its orbital resources, reducing the overall value that space has for humanity. In other words, acting now can help ensure the safety and sustainability of the final frontier. Since Russia launched its war in Ukraine, its soldiers have faced indefinite deployment, inadequate rest, and prolonged exposure to combat stress. According to Rand's Dara Massico, Russia's mistreatment of its military personnel has created two looming crises, troop retention and veteran mental health problems. Moscow already seems worried about recruitment and retention, Massico says. The government is offering attractive salaries and lifelong benefits for current and prospective servicemen. Despite these incentives, large-scale forced recruitment will likely remain necessary. No less worrying is the, quote, ticking social time bomb that Russia faces as troops return to their towns and villages, just as the terms Afghan syndrome and Chechen syndrome emerged to describe the plight of Russian veterans who lacked support and struggled to adapt to civilian life after those conflicts. It's only a matter of time before Ukraine syndrome grips Russia as thousands of veterans suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder or other conditions return home. Ukraine syndrome, in fact, is likely to be felt more deeply than what emerged in the wake of Russia's previous wars. An estimated 97% of Russian army and airborne personnel are deployed in this conflict, a much higher percentage than in Afghanistan or Chechnya. And combat intensity is high. Russian forces have sustained more casualties in the past 16 months than in a decade of war in Afghanistan in the 1980s or two campaigns in Chechnya in the 1990s. Meanwhile, even though most soldiers remain deployed, Russian hospitals are already strained, overwhelmed with the wounded, and may not be equipped to treat patients experiencing severe psychological trauma, for which there will be a great need. Russian psychologists estimate that more than 100,000 veterans will need professional help to cope with mental health disorders from the war. And Russia does not have anywhere near enough psychiatric facilities for this number. For now, these twin personnel crises of troop retention and veteran mental health problems remain on the horizon, 
as almost all Russian soldiers are currently under compulsory service. This means that the only ways out of the military, apart from death in combat, are reaching mandatory retirement age, medical discharge, or imprisonment. But it may only be a matter of time until military personnel can voluntarily leave Ukraine, and the, quote, wave of severe trauma that Russia has created will crash over its own country. On April 20th of last year, China signed its first security agreement in the South Pacific with the Solomon Islands. The deal authorized Chinese Navy ships to make routine port visits and allowed Chinese security services to train the island nation's law enforcement. At the time, this was widely seen as a dark day for the U.S. in Oceania. Many commentators worried that this would lead to the Solomon Islands eventually becoming China's first permanent oceanic military outpost. If these fears were clearly overblown then, they are especially overblown now, says Rand's Derek Grossman. More recently, we've seen Washington make major geostrategic gains in Oceania, while Beijing has grossly mismanaged its diplomacy in the region. Less than a month ago, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken traveled to the largest of the Pacific Island countries, Papua New Guinea, to sign two security agreements. Around the same time, the U.S. renewed its Compacts of Free Association with two of the three freely associated states in Oceania, the Federated States of Micronesia and Palau, while the third, with the Marshall Islands, will likely renew soon. Washington also enjoys the luxury of having close relationships with Australia and New Zealand, and a recent policy declaration has underscored the importance of cooperation on maritime security challenges in the region. For China, it's been a different story. Beijing has struggled to convince oceanic countries that it does not have ulterior motives in the region. And Grossman points out that climate change is another key issue perhaps the key issue for many Pacific Island nations. The U.S. may have the edge in this area, as China has yet to sufficiently address its carbon emissions, which are higher than those of all rich countries combined, and still rising fast. This suggests that there may be an opening for Washington. Grossman concludes that the U.S., quote, retains enormous advantages in Oceania, and should not be alarmed by Beijing's security activities in the region. But it should nevertheless keep a close eye on Beijing's moves. That's it for today's episode. You can learn more about the topics we discussed in the show notes at rand.org slash podcast. We'll see you next week. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis.